This episode of Industry Focus is supported by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Download their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits Today, at netsuite.com slash fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Tuesday, July 9th, and we're talking about the Endeavor IPO. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Motley Fool contributor, Asit Sharma via Skype. How's it going, Asit? Great, Nick. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, I haven't had you on in a while. I think last time I had you on, we were talking about Cracker Barrel, if, I, if I'm mistaken. How's your summer been? What you been up to? It's been wonderful. Uh, did some traveling. Uh, listeners, longtime listeners uh, may remember me talking about my son who's in Germany. Um, the host family that hosted him two years ago before he started engineering school sent two of their daughters, teenage daughters, uh, to us for almost three weeks. So we still had two teenage boys in the house. We had a great time, did a lot of local stuff here in Raleigh, North Carolina, tried to show them our beautiful state. We also uh, took them up to Washington, didn't have time to stop in at Full HQ um, in Alexandria, went to New York. It was wonderful, but now I'm, I'm catching up. I am endeavoring <laughs> to catch up on all things foolish. Well, I said that. How's, that, how's your summer going? Uh, it, it was great, man. I had a great Fourth of July over this weekend. Had some friends in town visiting us. We ended up, uh, me and my girlfriend were able to go to the Rolling Stones concert on Wednesday. So that was kind of a bucket list show to get to go to. Uh, so, you know, very excited. Excited to, you know, to your pun here, endeavor into into this this IPO S one uh, today. So uh, for folks who aren't familiar uh, with Endeavor. Uh, it, this is a, primarily a talent agency, traces its business back to 1898 with, fal- with the founding of the William Morris Agency. Today, it's the longest-running, largest talent agency in the world. Uh, but, however, in recent years, the company has really reshaped itself through, through a, lo- a series of acquisitions that has uh, moved it from its traditional uh, representation agency business into all manner of businesses, including content. They now own UFC and other, other uh, assets. Asad, can you give us kind of an overview of what Endeavor looks like today and how it grew uh, to its current size through acquisition and otherwise? Sure. So, as you said, uh, the company traces its roots back to 1898 with the founding of the William Morris Agency. Um, In the 2000s, Endeavor Agency was formed um, by Ari Emanuel, and uh, this company uh, merged with WMA, William Morris, in 2009. They acquired their next big step was to acquire IMG, uh, that is the huge sports and marketing uh, company, and they did this off of some uh, private equity fuel that they came across in 2012 when Silver Lake Partners became a major investor in the company, and that sort of changed the trajectory from these traditional talent agencies into a company that would become a serial acquirer. They acquired uh, Miss Universe and Pro Bull Riders in 2015. Um, Listeners are familiar with the mixed martial arts giant UFC. They acquired that in 2016. Um, And they launched their own uh, content arm in 2017 called Endeavor Content. Uh, This uh, past year in 2018, previous year, they brought into podcasts, VIP experiences, so experiential um, revenue, and also into sports betting, which is something you and I have discussed before, Nick. They're now into that with IMG uh, Arena. One more uh, company to mention is Learfield IMG College, which is a um, college licensing company, uh, which has rights to different college brands. Um, That's a very lucrative business, and we'll get back to this small company later in the show, because that plays into... um, how 
Endeavor uh, sometimes acquires and also uh, sells interests in companies that it's made more powerful. But that is basically a brief overview of their history. Um, their business model is one that's extremely diverse. You know, it starts with talent, but they also have a lot of intellectual property. They're in the content business, and again, it's a manifold of of industries from the traditional writer representation into, as I mentioned, sports betting, uh, into sports and sports broadcasting. So this is a company with a really wide footprint. One of the questions that we will cover in this show is the footprint too wide. Can you make money when you are a jack of all trades in the content uh, and distribution marketing world? Uh, you're exactly right. I mean, you look at the market. You know, they call out on their S1, their total addressable market being the global entertainment, sports, and media market. They say that's a 1.9 trillion dollar market as of 2017. Obviously, when you take a look at a, at a total addressable market that size, the realistic market is probably a little bit smaller than that. But really, they're playing all over the place when it comes to content and representation. They say that access is the key uh, to their business model. Traditionally, that had been defined as through talent, but but recently they brought in that access to include brands, uh, intellectual property, owned assets, as you mentioned, UFC, and so as we've seen, kind of content grow over time. Endeavor really touches all parts of that business, and and they're really representing. Uh, when you look at the talent side of the business, some of the most significant and important um, talent in in the world. So in 2018, Endeavor represented more Academy Academy Award winners and Grammy winners uh, than any other talent agency. Uh, they, they, this one blew my mind. They accounted for over half of HBO's original programming uh, in 2018. So really, a significant uh, presence just across uh, across the content landscape. It, to me, it seems similar in some ways to Live Nation when you look at the way the way they play in events where they touch really every major major player there. Um, but when you look at their financials, there are some questions about uh, how these acquisitions have have played out and whether they're going to fall to the bottom line. What synergies there might be uh, with the business? Can you just give us a brief overview of, of you know the, how the revenue has grown over time and what's been driving that uh, in recent years? Yeah, absolutely. So the revenue has grown basically from a focus into it in its two biggest segments. That is talent and representation, which you just mentioned. Um, they have over six thousand clients, one point three billion dollars in revenue. That's forty six percent of their total revenue, um, and that segment generates three hundred thirty five million in EBITDA. It's a word we're going to use a lot yep. in this show, uh, listeners. As you know, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. EBITDA is a good proxy for basically operating cash flow. So when you get a company this complex, which has uh, a lot of maybe arcane adjustments in its accounting, uh, some investors like to cut right to the quick and see instead of net income or loss, what is that adjusted or really the EBITDA number. They use an adjusted EBITDA number. We'll talk about that in a bit. So talent and representation, um, that's, again, 46% of revenue. They've also concentrated in this entertainment and sports uh, segment. That's their second major segment. It's actually 63% of their total. Last year, that segment did $2.2 billion in revenue and had $439 million in EBITDA. Uh, just looking at sports, entertainment and sports segment uh, for a bit, they specialize in distribution and sales. They're one of the largest independent global distributors of sports programming. Um, and here's a stat that you brought to my attention. Th- this one wowed me, Nick. They sell media rights globally in over 160 countries on behalf of 
more than 150 clients. One of those is the IOC, the International Olympic Committee. Um, so there you have it. They also have a smaller segment. Their third segment is called Endeavor X. It's relatively new. Um, and that segment did $66 million in revenue last year and $45 million in EBITDA. But let's talk about those uh, financials. Uh, the company has had a really phenomenal growth rate when you take a look at revenue. So I calculated... This is a rough calculation, listeners. So if there's a real number cruncher out there, don't call me on this. It might be a percentage or two off. But I count, counted that the company has had a 29% compounded annual growth rate in revenue over the last four years. So um, in 2014, the company did $1.3 billion in revenue. That grew to um, $3.6 billion last year. They've done that through a combination of organic growth in some of, of the um, content areas, but through a lot of acquisitions, some of which Nick mentioned. Now, here's the rub. If you look at this S1 statement, this registration statement, uh, Endeavor says, look, we did $3.6 billion in revenue, and we uh, generated out of that some $552 million in adjusted EBITDA. But you hear that word adjusted. So they've taken a number which is already sort of adjusted. When you're looking at EBITDA, you are adjusting net income. You're taking away non-cash items like interest expense, depreciation, and amortization, taxes. Um, some companies then adjust that number <laughs> and want to remove other items that are typically one-time in nature. The problem that I've got with this adjusted EBITDA number is that it takes out a lot of items that are actually recurring from year to year to year on Endeavor's books. Stock compensation is one. Okay, that one maybe I can grant because that is a non-cash expense. In other words, when you um, put an expense on your income statement, uh, when Nick and I run a business and he gets paid partially in stock, well, that doesn't really hit cash. So we can grant them that. But they, they're also pulling out numbers like merger and acquisition costs, restructuring costs, certain legal costs, and the like. The problem with this is, if you look over their financials for the last four to five years, Endeavor is a serial acquirer, as I said. So they have ongoing restructuring costs every year. They have ongoing legal costs that are tied to acquisitions. They have um, ongoing merger and acquisition costs. So these are actually recurring items that should not be pulled out. When I um, sort of added these back in, I got that they actually generated $267 million in uh adjusted EBITDA with my sort of selective addbacks. The problem with this is if you buy my argument that EBITDA is a rough proxy for operating cash flow, the company really doesn't generate a lot of operating cash. You can go to the cash flow statement. Last year, they only generated $121 million in true operating cash off of that $3.6 billion in sales. Their cash paid for interest bill last year was $267 million. So how are they supplying these deficits? And the answer is, it's through their private equity investors. Yes, the company has borrowed a lot, but most of that's been tied to acquisitions. Where they're really getting funded is through about $2.3 billion in investments from Silver Lake, the um, private equity firm that I managed. And that is paying the bills for acquisitions. It's covering deficits. And now, 
you, potential investor, are going to be asked to cover some potential deficits as well when this issue prices. So thank you for bearing with me. That was a bit of a long explanation. But I'd like to throw it back to you, Nick. What are your thoughts on that overview of their financial structure? Maybe you disagree with me um, on that analysis. Yeah, I, I think there, there's clearly some concerns uh, you know, with their debt. I think when, when you look at their EBITDA without adjustments, you're looking at about a 15x debt to EBITDA, I believe. Uh, so that's a pretty high multiple there. Uh, and and so you really would have liked to see with all these acquisitions over the past several years to see some kind of uh, scale kick in where where you start you know seeing some returns on those assets. Uh, those haven't started to play out. And, and when you look at the way their debt is structured, the repayment schedule on their debt begins to accelerate around 2022-2023. So w- when you look at this business, really starts needs to start generating positive EBITDA, a positive cash flow to be able to to support those debt payments in, in the coming years. Uh, otherwise, it's just going to be an issue for the company. And so and so when you look at you know the issues with the debt, not having enough uh, EBITDA to really support. Uh, the payments, at least as things are constituted today, that comes back to maybe why the company is going public. And they mentioned that they're going to use the proceeds uh, from their public offering uh, to support uh, working capital and corporate purposes, and may use it to pay down debt or to fund new acquisitions. When you look at uh, Endeavor looking to use this uh, this IPO money to pay down debt, what are your thoughts looking at that as an investor, particularly when the debt and the EBITDA is a concern uh, for the business today? So it it doesn't necessarily bother me if, as we're going to talk about in the second half of the show, there's this, a viable path to take this really phenomenal revenue growth and you know, to get some, some orange juice out of those oranges. Um, if you just take what's in the S1, it's hard to gauge because as of yet, we just have an initial S1 statement. So typically, listeners, uh, you file your S1 and then a a few weeks later, you'll file what's called an S1 amended statement, an S1 slash A, and then you'll fill in placeholder numbers. There are really not any placeholder numbers filled in. We don't know the expected pricing range, which tells us how much the company will raise. Um, we don't know exactly how much would be allocated to working capital, how much to debt. Those numbers typically get filled in, and, and Nick will f- will fill you in uh, later in the show on why there isn't uh, hasn't been an S1 amended statement filed yet. But absent that information, it doesn't bother me if the company can make a persuasive case on, yeah, we'll pay down some debt, and here's how we're going to improve our margins and really capitalize on this great intellectual property we have, our our vast footprint in the market. But that is for us to uh, toss around in just a few minutes. We'll pin that down, and then I'll return to your question, which is a great one. All right, yeah, we'll cover that on the back half of the show. But first... If you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. But the problem growing businesses have that keeps them from knowing their numbers is their hodgepodge of business systems. They have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on. It's just a big, inefficient mess taking up too much time and too many resources. And that hurts the bottom line. That's where NetSuite by Oracle comes in, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting, orders, and HR instantly, right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com slash fool. That's netsuite.com slash fool to download your free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits. That's netsuite.com slash fool. 
Okay, I said on the back half of the show, I want to talk about some of the opportunities uh, for Endeavor to grow and kind of leverage their assets, as well as some of the risks facing the business today. Um, in their S1, uh, Endeavor talks about uh, one of their opportunities is just increasing demand from audiences for content. We see, you know, more and more, you know, Netflix, Amazon, Disney Plus. There's just more and more demand for content from consumers every day, and Endeavor is trying to position themselves to be able to deliver that, both through their relationships with talent, their owned assets they're moving into, as well as just the marketing and production services they offer to other entities. When you look at all these assets that Endeavor has together, do you think these pieces really fit together and add leverage? When you look at the S1 and the competitive advantages that Endeavor calls out, do you buy the case that they're making out I'm tempted to, because as one of the world's largest, if not the largest, I believe they are the largest. The reason I'm hedging here is if they've lost some of their writing talent, which we're going to talk about in just a second here. But... Um, as the largest representor of talent and also one of the largest um, really conglomerates of content and these subcategories that Nick has been talking about, television packaging fees, um, sponsorships, ticket sales, license fees, data streaming fees, pay-per-view programming, etc. As one of these largest conglomerates, they have the fuel. Uh, the, there's no um, problem with this company increasing revenue. And they're very savvy at acquiring to add on not just more revenue, but more diverse revenue. The question is, has the focus been so much on adding all these uh, services that it's detracted from a really basic part of the financial equation, which is you know, once you add new revenue, you have to find operating leverage. You have to increase margin, cut costs, so those profits start flowing to the bottom line. I believe that Endeavor has the pieces, but what investors are going to ask, institutional investors, when they uh, view the road shows, that is when this company goes on the road and pitches uh, this IPO to pension funds, to big corporate investors, they're really going to dig into the question of whether the management team, Ari Emanuel um, and um, Mr. Whitesell, who will also talk briefly about Patrick Whitesell, uh, are these more really awesome talent uh, and, and acquisition uh, moguls, do they have the type of clinical operational acumen to now start making profit out of what's been a, a money-losing business for a number of years? And that's why I, I can't seem to get sold on this equation. I do want to flip it back to you, Nick, to talk about their acquisition expertise. And I've got a small point to make about that. But you know, the other side of this coin is they're really good at acquiring small companies, adding to their intellectual properties. Could that be the piece that makes them attractive as an investment? Um, so I'll, I'll ask you about their acquisitions. Yeah, I think when you look at Ari Emanuel, he started Endeavor, you know, the, the agency, the, you know, the historical business that led to what it is today in 1995 and really had a vision to shake up uh, you know the management industry and he's really done that he's had a vision and he's been talking about taking endeavor public for a long period of time so his vision has clearly played out and he's been very aggressive in doing so um, there does appear to be some opportunity 
as Endeavor moves into content to leverage their relationships with clients to maybe do some vertical content creation uh, for their clients that can create new opportunities that didn't exist before, uh, where you can see all these assets kind of rhyming together to create more value uh, than they would on their own. Um, it's just it's to be determined to see how they will be integrated. Uh, I'd really like to continue to watch this company over several quarters. Even most of these acquisitions, I mean, the big moves into into podcasts and sports betting are only a year or two old. So it's hard to see how the uh, to see all the, the, the what the final product will be after the integration takes place. But uh, what are your thoughts there, Asit? You said you had, you had some additional thoughts there on what's going on with M and A there. Yeah, just um, so briefly, one thing they seem to have a talent with is. Uh, Increasing value because they've got um, really a stable of institutional or really private equity investors, and um, they seem to have a talent for making an acquisition and then selling off parts and pieces after making a company more valuable. The example I want to use is uh, Learfield IMG College, which, as we said earlier, um, deals with college sports licensing. Um, very valuable business, and uh, after really forming this company through the merger of two other companies, Endeavor turned around and sold. Um, it had a 49% stake in Learfield IMG College. It, it turned around and sold uh, recently a 13% stake back to Silver Lake uh, affiliates of Silver Lake um, Partners. And that was a, a pretty lucrative deal for them because out of that, they were able to book a nearly $700 million gain um, on their books, which made up for losses in 2019. So there is a talent here for buying low, combining with other assets, selling not even the whole thing, but selling a slice of um, an entity at a higher price. So you know, there's some value there. Um, and I also did want to mention that one of their goals is to pursue more strategic M&A. As Endeavor has grown, uh, you could make an argument that since they got uh, a rich investor in the form of Silver Lake in 2012, they've done a lot of acquisitions. Not all of them have been the most strategic in nature. It's more of what we've been talking about, just building capabilities across this wide footprint. But the company says it's going to be pretty strategic going forward. So there's some opportunity there. Yeah. Last thing I'll say there on management and M&A, I think if you're going to buy into this company, you really need to believe in the vision of Ari Emanuel, who is the CEO of the company, as well as Patrick Weitzel, who is the chairman. Uh, you know, they've, they were co-CEOs for a period of time leading up to this. But th those two men, uh, along with Silver Lake, will dominate voting control of, the, of this business. Pretty much any decision uh, that's going to happen with the company moving forward, they're going to have the voting rights to decide that. Uh, so, you, you really have to believe in the vision uh, of these, these folks moving forward and you know, be willing to give them a long leash, because I think there's going to be some volatility. And as, as we move into, into these risks, I, I think that'll, that'll, just right off the bat, right when they go public, uh, uh, there, there, there is some, some question marks there. And so, I want to talk about, uh, you know, when you think about a business like Endeavor that is in the talent management business, one of the biggest risks that you have is that your assets or your clients that you represent and, and the talent that they have uh, to, to you know, content producers. And there's always a risk that those clients may become unhappy with your services and may move on uh, to another agents. And if you lose that, then, th then there, goes the, there goes your, uh, 
your business. And in, in, in recent weeks and months, there has been a growing controversy between not just Endeavor, but all, all the major uh, talent representation agencies and, and the Writers Guild of America, which represents most of the television uh, and, and, and writers in the country. Just off the top, I'll, I'll go into more detail on this, but Asit, can you give our listeners just a brief overview of what this dispute is uh, between the Writers Guild and Endeavor, and what what is the Writers Guild upset about with uh, with agents and, and and the like? Sure. So the Writers Guild of America represents the talent side of the equation, and uh, there is a traditional, very simple um, fee equation which uh, has been around for decades, in which you know writers receive a certain amount of um, each deal once they're represented and uh, go to work for uh, the buyer of the content. The rub is that, um, and and Nick, uh, I believe you told me earlier that this goes back to a a case from the 1970s where the WGA was upset to but agreed to a sort of a newer fee structure, which includes something called packaging fees. And packaging fees basically um, put out a model where um, a company like Endeavor is paid out of the production budget of each episode um, of, say, a TV series, and, and also retains some of the profits. This is a 3-3-10 model. So 3% of the series license fee Endeavor or a company like Endeavor would uh, get up front. 3% of the license fee will be deferred, and 10% of profits will go to uh, an agency like Endeavor if those profits materialize, which will be important in a second. So this is versus a traditional 10% commission that a writer could expect. Now, this, if you look at the perspective of the WGA, which represents the writers, this is a conflict of interest. The more the writers are paid, the less profitable a show will be, and the less of the production budget is left to pay Endeavor, which affects the, the rest of that formula with the packaging fees. And so WGA has basically gone to court, um, and they are suing not just Endeavor, but the other major talent agencies at the completely wrong time, <laughs> I should say, for Endeavor. And, and Nick, as, as we've been working on this episode over the last week, it seems like every day there's a new Sally in this, which is not great news when you're getting ready to go on one of these roadshows and pitch your case to institutional investors. But I'll, I'll flip it back to you. That's the brief overview of the context. And listeners, I will let our resident attorney, um, Nick, sort of peel this onion back a little bit more for us. Yeah. So, so yeah, you, you've seen in, in, like I said, in recent weeks and months, uh, this, this feud between the Writers Guild and the major talent agencies really flare up. And as you mentioned, uh, the Writers Guild has recently filed lawsuits uh, against, against the major uh, talent agencies, of which Endeavor is one, saying that, as you mentioned, there's a, there's a conflict of interest uh, between between these talent agencies getting these packaging fees that get a production a percentage of the production budget, uh, and that amounts to a violation of the duty of loyalty that a fiduciary owes to their clients. So in this case, the agent owes a fiduciary loyalty uh, to uh, to to the writer in this situation. And, and if you are uh, taking a percentage of the profits of of a, a show, it's in your incentive to not increase the labor costs of said show, uh, therefore to keep keep the profits higher. And so there's a clear conflict. Of interest there. However, there are some question marks over whether this has really caused a net harm to writers. So, so to prevail on a claim where you're alleging a you know a violation of the duty of loyalty, you have to prove that there was harm 
um, and that there was no kind of consent by the plaintiff um, to the to the uh, to the agent's behavior. And, and in this case, um, over the past five years, Endeavor has called out that only five series on ABC, CBS, NBC, or Fox have even generated back end profits, so where those production rights would kick in. And so, only for a small percentage of of uh, productions. Or is this conflict actually materializing? And so, for the vast majority of cases, uh, Endeavor not taking their 10% traditional commission uh, from their clients actually results in, in most cases, their clients getting a 10% higher uh, higher payout than they would otherwise. So, it's to be determined how this case is going to play out. There's also uh, uh, the Writers Guild is suing all the um, talent agencies, alleging. Uh, that they are price fixing. It's a horizontal price fixing allegation. I don't think that one is going to go forward. It's just very difficult to prove. You need a smoking gun, an email or something that says, hey, we agreed to fix prices at this price. But then there's also a third lawsuit going on, also an antitrust lawsuit, where you've got all the uh, the talent agencies countersuing the Writers Guild of America and, and William Morris uh, Endeavor uh, was the first one to do so, filing suit in Los Angeles federal court on June 24th. They have an antitrust case going back the other way, uh, alleging that the Writers Guild's move. Uh, a little bit more background here: the Writers Guild passed a new code of conduct back in April. Part of that code of conduct required that any agency that would do business with with the writers uh, would have to sign on to it, and the provisions of that code of conduct. Uh, prohibited agencies from engaging in packaging fees, as well as uh, something that Endeavor also does, producing their own content in-house. Which, when you're producing your own content as well, you could see it's, it, you become management as well as representing your clients. Well, in relation to that, uh, so 7,000 writers have left their agents since that has taken place. I believe they, they say that um, I think 1,500 of those have left from, from Endeavor. So anyway, related to that, to that lawsuit, uh, Endeavor and the rest of rest of the the major uh, talent agencies have countersued uh, the, the Writers Guild of America, uh, alleging a concerted refusal to deal, a group boycott uh, that even violates uh, the antitrust waivers that traditionally uh, labor groups get uh, uh, from antitrust provisions. So all that to say. All these talent agencies you know, suing the Writers Guild of America, the Writers Guild of America suing the talent agencies back and forth, that resulting in Endeavor potentially losing a meaningful number of its writer clients. Coming back to the investing point of view here, when you look at the uncertainty when it comes to Endeavor being able to keep its talent in-house, uh, one last thing I'll mention is the WGA is directly going after Endeavor's IPO. On July 2nd, they filed a letter you know, directed at potential Endeavor investors laying out the, the conflicts between WGA uh, and Endeavor. When you see all this playing out, how concerned does this make you for the IPO and also just for the business moving forward as well? Let me take the business first because uh, the business is not as much of a concern. It's to everyone's interest that the WGA, regardless it's in attack mode now, uh, to strike a deal with uh, the major agencies. Either they'll get some kind of concession and peel back one or two of these, uh, what they perceive to be conflicts of interest and, and breaches of fiduciary uh, responsibility, uh, in the form of maybe even negotiating smaller packaging fees. They'll have some kind of pullback. Uh, the two groups have to work together. You know, the guild needs the talent agencies and vice versa. So, long term for the business, there really aren't. Um, that many concerns. However, 
this is a really it's been a, a strong run in the markets over the last year or two for initial public offerings. And so if you think about it, Endeavor, which is not a tech company, although they are investing in smaller technology-enabled companies, they're not a hot healthcare company. They are a content company, um, which has a good look in that they are a little faster growing than your average uh, content company. They're competing for investment dollars. And this is the rub. When you're pitching this on Wall Street, institutional investors are really, um, you know, they're going to be hesitant to step up in a big way, which can affect really the pricing of the issue. And, and as we all know, the pricing of the issue determines how much you raise. That determines how much you'll have left to shore up working capital and pay down debt. And an institutional investor who thinks through this, you know, can see if he or she looks around and does not see a groundswell of support because of like the uncertainty around these legal issues. If there's not enough groundswell of investment, you can do the math and understand that the IPO itself really won't change the complexion of the company. And then if you're an investor, well, why would you invest in that case? There's a sort of circular logic that develops when a roadshow is uh, assailed by issues like these. You know, we've seen this story before over the years. So I am concerned for the IPO. And um, I think, you know, it's within the realm of possibility that the IPO could be delayed or, or even shelved for some time. As I said, we haven't seen an amended statement yet. This initial statement was filed, um, I think, on May 23rd. It's about time to see that first amended statement that starts punching in numbers. Um, where the, we, right now we just have placeholder blanks in the registration statement. So I think it's a, sort of a, a worry. Um, moving to the larger question, let's say they get through the IPO. Is this something that you, listener, would want to put your money behind? Um, I'm going to ask Nick to opine on that first, and, and I'll also give my opinion. Yeah, I, I would say right now, I, I want to see a couple quarters of how things play out. As I mentioned earlier, you know they've made a large number of acquisitions in the past few years particularly some of the more interesting you know content that they've moved into uh, has really been in the last couple of years so I'd like to see how those th- those things continue to get integrated as well we have this litigation hanging over their heads even if even if you know this dispute doesn't go to trial uh, the negotiations back and forth could take some time if there is a, you know a work stoppage at any point uh, that of course is going to be a significant issue to Endeavor. If their clients are not working, they can't collect fees. Um, however, when you look at the, these package rights, uh, that does give maybe Endeavor a little bit of leverage uh, over, over the Writers Guild in this situation, and that Endeavor is going to have consistent revenue coming in from these package rights, while the agency, if they had a work stoppage or something like that, uh, is, just, is just not going to have the same type of cash coming in. So, so it looks as though Endeavor could have some leverage, but I, I want to see how things play out. Another thing to think about too is the employees of this company, as they've made all these acquisitions and been preparing to go public, have been counting on you know getting some liquidity uh, from from this IPO. And if that affects that, I you know I'd be concerned. In an agency like this, you could have some departures or, or move elsewhere. I really want to see those question marks be resolved before I put a lot of cash behind this company. I will say before we really dove into a lot of these issues. I was very excited about all the assets that Endeavor holds and the way that they can leverage their relationships uh, with their clients to just touch content across the board. And I still like those assets, but I really want to see this dispute with the Writers Guild get resolved. 
And I would like to see just a couple quarters at least of continued integration and some positive signs that we're going to see upticks um, in EBITDA. So I think I think it's a watch, wait and see for me. Very interesting, uh, but I want to see some more clarity right now. What about you, Asif? Yeah, I'm in the same boat, Nick. Um, I want to watch this for a few quarters. Like you, I like the assets. The assets are strong. Uh, but the problem with this S1 is, hey, our strengths are our strengths, and we're going to make them, we're going to amplify them even more. There really is no consideration uh, in this S1 to say that, hey, we could have done a better job with um, controlling our operating costs, especially the distribution costs that go hand in hand with content, our marketing and selling costs, which uh, are sort of high. I think if there had been a little bit of focus uh, to that and a plan presented that we have not just a way to become stronger on an adjusted EBITDA basis, but on an EBITDA basis or a gap, uh, uh, income according to generally accepted accounting principles, uh, some kind of plan to show on the operational side that they can control costs and start getting some of that operating leverage. I would have been a little more excited about this because to me that would signal We've got these great assets, and, and we can make them profitable. And at the end of the day, investor, you need strong and growing cash flows, uh, just as you need uh, a nice-looking adjusted number that you've been able to pick and choose what goes into that formula. So I'm going to wait and see a very interesting company. This isn't to say that at some point you wouldn't want to make an investment, but I would not rush in for a few quarters at least. Yep, I feel the exact same way. I said we'll continue to follow this one. I mean, it touches so many things I like, you know, sports content. I mean, you know, I know, super interesting company. But uh, we'll definitely even continue to follow the, it. Even had the betting angle for us. I know, right? Everything sports we talked betting, about. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. um, all right, I always love having you on, Asset. We'll continue to follow this one and uh, hopefully talk about some more companies soon. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Thanks. You're welcome. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Asit Sharma, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!